Shalom, and welcome to A Voice Calling in the Wilderness, a trumpet call, a voice crying out loud for God to those who would hear, so they would run to Him, that they might be warned. How do we identify the truth, the hope, dangers, lies, and enemies we are surrounded by, and what our role is, and how we should react to the world around us? What our source of strength is, and what to expect? We are missionaries, led by the Holy Spirit, proclaiming God's Word based on Scripture, giving to the church, and appointed by God for the purpose of helping to rebuild the spirit of the church and to reignite the fire of the living God in the hearts of man. We are here to talk about the world around us, what we are witnessing, what it means, and what we should be doing about it. We have been told about this time what we are experiencing, how we got here. Now that we are here, what should we be doing? Where do we go from here? What is our role? What is the timeline or calendar of events that we have been seeing and what will become? We are living in a world that seems extremely dark, that the hope of man seems to be waning. Many ask, where do we go from here? What does it all lead to? Christians often wonder, is this the end? Are we about to see the second coming? What do the end of the age look like? What did Jesus say the calendar or timeline for his return looks like? What should we be looking for? When can we be most assured that the end is actually near? Today we're speaking with Dr. Gary Durham, Senior Pastor of Palm City New Hope Church. Pastor Durham is going to help us unravel the mystery of Jesus' calendar, show us where Jesus explained exactly what it would look like, and where we'll be experiencing when he returned. Welcome, Pastor Durham. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I think any of us would agree that the last few decades have been more concerning for the believer, that there seems to be more pressure put on us in our nation and around the world. It appears that the darkness or evil is pressing in from all sides, and that we here in America appear to be powerless to push back. With all the strife, struggles, and persecutions, angst, and pure evil that Christians are witnessing around the world, many are asking, is this the end of the age? Pastor Gary, I hope that you can help us understand Jesus' timeline and calendar for the end of the age and what believers can expect, see, and experience in the future. There seems to be a lot of theories, discussion about the end times and what we would be witnessing, what we would be experiencing. There are many prophets that have popped up over time. Many, even in the last few decades, there's hundreds that have popped up here just in America. And they're claiming so many different ideas about what we're seeing and how it aligns with the Bible and the end times and, and what we should be expecting, what is going to happen next, and given some actually very near-term things that are going to occur, and some have missed targets, and nobody mm -hmm. knows what we can believe anymore, because a lot of these things that people are saying don't necessarily align in the Bible or are not easy to find. So there seem to be at least three theories, major theories, main theories, about what the end times look like and what we could expect to see or what we could expect to hear. Can you help us understand this? Yeah, there's a lot of confusion about uh, what the Bible teaches about what we would really call the end of the age. Uh, we use the term end time because uh, we talk about in theology the word eschatology, and eschatology just means, you know, the study of last things, uh, the things that will come at the end. Uh, and so uh, there are three major theories. There are more than that, obviously, but there are three major ones that have kind of held the sway in the church down through the centuries, such as uh, we would, they're usually related to the millennium. Uh, the, the first would be all millennial. And you would recognize that the all at the beginning is the A, which is a negation, which means there is no millennium. Uh, that it's all, this, this interprets the millennium mentioned in the Bible and spoken about extensively through the Old Testament and the New Testament as being uh, merely allegorical or symbolic or, you know, typological, but not actual. There's not really going to be a millennium. And, those, and they have all kinds of theories and ways of interpreting what they think composes the millennium in that sim symbolism. Then you would have what is called post-millennialism, which in times past, especially through the Middle Ages, held a lot of sway in the church, uh, especially when the, before the Reformation. Uh, this is the idea that the church was going to ultimately Christianize the world and take over the world to this extent and rule the world and make it so good that the kingdom would come to earth and then Christ would come back and uh, we would rule it for a thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years, he would come back and set up his eternal kingdom. And uh, that was 
post-millennialism. That does not hold much sway today. It's had a little bit of resurgence among a few small groups, but most theologians have seen that that just simply doesn't seem to match with what the Bible teaches. The third and the most predominant, which is, I believe, the scriptural view, is what we call pre-millennialism. And it's the idea that Christ will come back before the millennium and that he will set up his kingdom and rule for a thousand years. And at the end of that time, as described in Revelation, there will be a great rebellion when Satan is released because he will be confined for that thousand year period. And then uh, when he gathers an army to march against uh, God's city, Jerusalem, which from which Christ is ruling, uh, God will send fire from heaven, it says. Well, really, that's the what Peter describes when he talks about the whole universe is going to disappear uh, in a great uh, ball of fire and the elements are going to melt with a fervent heat because the very next verses in Revelation, if you go, don't, if you remember the Revelation wasn't written with chapter divisions, the very next verses describe the great white throne judgment. And it says that heaven and earth had fled and there was no place found for them, which means the universe has ceased to exist as we know it. And so, and then after that judgment comes, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth where the old heaven and earth had passed away. So that's kind of the, the way premillennialism lays out. And then there is, uh, within premillennialism, a lot of different kinds of uh, theories. Uh, and these mostly have to do with where is going to be the actual rapture of the church. For example, you have what is called pre-tribulationism. Pre-tribulationism believes, and usually is interpreted to mean uh, previous to the 70th week of Daniel, which we don't have time to talk about that now, but that has to do with Daniel's calendar, which ended at the, the day Jesus rode in on Nisan the 9th into Jerusalem in AD 33, uh, and he arrived as the king of Israel. And then it said that after that, shortly after that, that the Messiah would be cut off or killed, and he was five days later crucified. And then uh, there's a time, a period of time, a dispensation of time, which is undefined in length, that would be filled with wars and, and desolations until the end. And then we're told about one who will come, who will uh, create a covenant with many for one seven. Many say it's going to be a covenant with Israel. It doesn't say that in the Bible. It says with many, which means many nations, many people. And as you read the rest of the Bible, you learn it's a world empire. It's a global empire which subdues the whole earth, it tells us. And the result of that is that, that when he signs that treaty, that it's for seven years, and that begins the last seven years of this age. And so if you are pre-tribulation rapturist, you believe that Christ is going to come back right, most people interpret that to mean he's going to come back right before uh, the 70th week of Daniel, because they called the 70th week of Daniel the tribulation. The Bible doesn't. It, it says it contains it. But the Bible refers to the last 42 months or 1260 days or, uh, you know, a times, times and half a times of the end from the time that the Antichrist sets himself up as God in the temple. Uh, and he has uh, apocalypto or exposed his uh, his mask is taken off, so to speak. And we know who he is at that point. Uh, that's when the tribulation, the great one, as the language of the Bible puts it in the original, begins. And that's the time. Uh, that is terrible. So some people uh, who are pre-tribulation will put it at the midpoint. That's often called mid-tribulation rapture because they believe, well, of course, more accurately, that that's where the tribulation actually starts. It, the 70th week of Daniel just contains it. It's not the whole of it. And then uh, there are those who are pre-wrath. They say, well, no, no, it's not going to happen there. It happens a little later before God starts pouring out his wrath. And there's a lot of uh, good arguments there that he wouldn't bomb his own troops and so on and so forth, you know. Uh, but, of course, then there's arguments that, well, he might protect the Christians just like he did the Israelites in Goshen, uh, you know, during the time of the Exodus and the plagues on, on Egypt, which is a type in the Bible of end time as well and how he will deal with the world. And then finally, there is post-tribulation rapture, which says that the coming of Christ to set up his kingdom and the rapture all happen at the same time. It's not necessarily a one-day event. It's a period of time, which could cover several weeks or even a month or two. Uh, and then Christ sets foot on the Mount of Olives and sets up his kingdom. Now, I know that's a long explanation, but that's kind of, and we certainly couldn't cover all that in this podcast, but that's kind of the, the big overview and we'll probably focus in on premillennialism today, I think, and 
and talk about that because that's where most of the questions are today. You know, when is Christ coming back? What are the signs we should be looking for? And can we even know the sequence of events? And that's what we're going to talk about, I think. Yes, and, and thank you very much for that. So one of the things that you've mentioned a couple times there that uh, is millennialism. Can you help the layperson understand what the millennium is? Yes. Well, the word millennium simply is a word which means a thousand. And uh, the scriptures talk about Christ coming and reigning on this earth. It's talked about in the Old Testament. It's referred to as a, and it, that's the title we give it theologically, but it's referred to as a thousand years in scripture. Uh, in the New Testament, in Revelation, John identifies as that, as that in the 20th chapter. And uh, so we call it a millennium. And so it's the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign on this present earth. And uh, and he comes and he destroys the, animals, the armies of Antichrist at Armageddon, which is the end of the 70th week of Daniel. And then he sets up his kingdom and uh, rules here. The Christians will have by that time uh, become resurrected and transformed and will be immortal and will rule and reign with him through that thousand years. That, But there will be people uh, that will not be immortal, which will go into the millennial reign, remnants of Israel, and it says the remnants of some of the other nations that are allowed to survive. And then they will repopulate the earth and have children, and they will still have a decision to make. And at the end, it tells us that some will make the wrong decision. But then that's the last of it. And uh, so that's the millennial reign. Uh, we don't know. We're not given a lot of details, but we are told that it is a time when Christ will rule with a rod of iron, which means he will. there will be no violence on the earth. He will make sure everyone uh, stays in bounds, so to speak. And uh, But that doesn't necessarily save a person. A person still has to choose from the heart. Very good. Thank you very much. So if you read Revelations, I know that there's a lot of people that read Revelation and get some confusion about things that happened during the first century church mm-hmm. versus things that are still yet to happen. Right. And they have a difficult time trying to draw that line of where these different events occur across the timeline. Can you kind of clear up some of those things that maybe happened during that first century church time frame, and, and so we can understand what has happened yet versus what is yet to happen? Well, I, th- I think, J.D., to do that uh, accurately, we might want to slow down just a little bit here okay. and maybe talk about uh, s- some things that Jesus taught us from the Olivet Discourse. And to kind of prep for that, let me just give you a short little history uh, about myself. I was raised in pre-millenni- premillennialism and uh, was raised in a particular version of that, and I was very welded to it. My father was a theologian. Uh, my grandfather was a great Bible teacher. Uh, and even though he didn't have as much education opportunities, he was clearly a, a brilliant scholar of the Word, and he taught me a lot. And uh, and then years later, I discovered that I should have listened a little more closely to him. But that's another story. <laughs> but the but when I went to my undergraduate work uh, in the university, I uh, I studied theology and uh, was. Uh, you know, and when I got into eschatology, I was very, very just welded to the theory that I had been taught. I knew it upside downwards and backwards. I loved theology from the time I was a kid. Mom used to send me to bed when Dad would have these theological groups in uh, of students from the university to discuss. And uh, she would send me to bed when I was about nine or ten years old, and I would sneak back down the stairs and sit on the stairs and listen to the discussions about the impeccability of Christ and so on and so forth, and and thought that was great stuff. You know, I know I was kind of a boring kid probably in some ways, but for other kids, <laughs> but I love that stuff. But but uh, so I went to the university really believing what I believed, and I I ran into a, a man that I ended up doing some work for the university while I was in the in in that my undergraduate program and speaking for them and things. And, and uh, I ran into a guy by the name of Dr. Larry Fine. Uh, actually, he wasn't doctor yet. He was still just finishing his PhD. And uh, he was having questions about the theory that I thought was the only theory. And he and I had long debates, and we all got to travel together sometimes. Uh, and uh, we, would tr- we would talk for hours and hours and hours, <laughs> and I was just, you know, and I would argue him into a corner because he was still trying to decide what he thought the Bible believed. As it turned out, I left still believing that, and by the time I got into my master's program, 
I begin to think, you know, at some point I need to really investigate it, but, you know, I'm still pretty clear I'm where I should be. And then I got into my first doctoral program, my first PhD, and, oh, my, uh, I decided to do study into eschatology from an es- uh, from a exegetical point of view, which means to see what the what's in the Bible and pull out what the Bible says, not to do it by eisegesis, which is so common in eschatology or last days studies where people read into the scriptures what they want to see or their theory. They come up with a theory and then read it into the scriptures and pull out proof text and try to make it look like it says it supports it. And and, uh, actually that's what I was doing. That's what I've been taught to do. But I started doing an exegetical approach and it brought me to complete confusion uh, because I suddenly realized that what I, the way I used the Bible and the theory I was supporting was totally unscriptural. I began to study the early church fathers and the ones who were students of the apostles and their immediate disciples and what they taught about uh, the end of the age. And I realized that none of them believed the theory that I had been taught and I was constantly teaching and defending and that they all, in fact, rebuked that theory. And so that really shattered me a little bit. And it took me about five years uh, through a doctoral program and so on to come to the place I finally said, Okay, I've got to throw this theory on the scrap heap and and just build it out of Scripture. And when I did that, I finally discovered that there were a lot of men out there who had already discovered that, and that there. And I don't know why God kept those books from me, but I never discovered them until I got it straightened out on my own from Scripture. And then, uh, as I began to really dig deeper into those resources, I saw that there there's already a lot of scholarship in that area, and it turned out that. Uh, I came to a very different view. So, but I would say the key passage, J.D., that helps us with this is what I call the calendar of Jesus. And this is the Olivet Discourse. Uh, The disciples, you know, were walking with Jesus in that last week or so of his ministry in Jerusalem. They're walking around the temple. It's absolutely magnificent. Herod has already at this point spent up to 46 years making this temple one of the wonders of the world. It's gleaming white marble and gold, and it shines like a jewel in the sunlight, and it's a massive complex. And they're excited. Jesus has just been hailed the king of the Jews on Palm Sunday, and they're thinking he's going to take his power and start using his miracle power, and he's going to become the king of Israel, and we're going to be his prime ministers. And they're probably picking out their office, you know. They're they're like, you know, I'll put my office over there. And, you know, they're looking at all these beautiful buildings. And they're all excited and elbowing each other. Hey, we're soon going to be in charge, you know. You can imagine all that. And then Jesus just kind of reigns on their party because they're pointing out the beautiful buildings, Matthew tells us. And Jesus says, you see all this? Not one stone's going to be left on top of another. It's all going to be cast down. And they're like, what? <laughs> you know, I, th- I thought this, you know, God had... Herod built this so you'd have a great headquarters to rule from. And Jesus is like, no, not going to happen. Not, not, not now. And so later he goes out to the Mount of Olives and they come to him and they say, Lord, when is this going to happen, this destruction of the temple? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So they asked multiple questions. Mm-hmm. Some of them had to do with the end of the age. Some had to do with when are you actually coming back? And then there was, when's this going to happen in this destruction of the temple? And so Jesus then begins to to give them a calendar. Now, this is important. We cannot know the date of the rapture of the church. That's very clearly taught in Scripture. I know there are some who claim they can date the rapture because they try to separate it from the second coming of Christ, as if there's a first phase, second coming, and a second phase, second coming, or there's a Second coming and a third coming. Nobody really says third coming because they know it's not in the Bible. But, but you know, they kind of split it up or a split coming theory, as we sometimes call it. But, um, but, and so they'll say, well, you can't know the exact day Jesus is actually coming and setting his foot on the Mount of Olives. But you can predict the rapture of the church. And then they'll use numerology or some kind of, sometimes the wackiest theories you've seen. And, you know, there's guys who write these books and get everybody all scared. And I would have people coming to me and even pastors coming to me and saying, oh, uh, you really think Jesus is coming back on this day? And I'd say, no, because he said we can't know the day of the Oh, but they, they claim they can know the rapture. They just can't know that. And I said, no, that's not biblical. And I said, even if they'd guessed it, 
Jesus would change it or the Father would change it because he said we're not going to know. So, uh, But the point is, is that uh, Jesus basically begins to answer those questions. He gives them a calendar. We can know the sequence because what we're going to discover, this is a sequence calendar, and the original Greek, the original language that this is written in, nails it down. It's got little what I call cement nails at a certain point where everything is nailed down in sequence. You can't scramble it. And he doesn't leave any of the major elements out. He Now, you can go to other places in the New Testament and add a lot of flesh and blood to it. You can put a lot of flesh on the skeleton, so to speak, and it fills it out considerably. But Jesus gives us, the, so to speak, the structure, and that's the sequence. And Matthew 24, 25, which is the longest uh, record of the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13, which is a, like a more uh, condensed version of that same thing, and then Luke 21, which is also the Olivet Discourse, but also contains some things that Mark and Matthew do not, and Matthew and Mark contain a few things that Luke did not include, but the the whole Olivet Discourse is when you harmonize those. And so we can answer that question, but what we need to do is look at the Olivet Discourse and maybe walk do a walkthrough. Sure, that sounds great. So the disciples and the Jews at the time when Jesus came and they began to believe on him, they thought that he was here to lead a military rebellion against Rome mostly mm-hmm. and to free them militarily, free them as a, a warrior king at that time. Mm-hmm. Today, we understand that that was not the case. We understand right. that he came here to uh, save us from sin. But in that connection that they were having at the time, what were their chief concerns about what he was telling them about the destruction of the temple and the world that they knew? Well, you must understand the perspective of the Jews of that time. They felt that they had come through a really incredible time of silence. 400 years, it's called, the the time when there was no voice. And then that kind of was broken by John the Baptist, who was the voice crying in the wilderness. And then, uh, but before that, and the end of the kind of the canon of the Old Testament, there was a very stark period of time where they had almost no word from God, so to speak, other than what they already had. Uh, and so, and then of course they had come through the exile, they had come through the return, but things had not gone well. If we were to take time and go through the history and how they suffered under the Solution Empire and the various empires and the Romans and so on up to that point, uh, it was, it was horrendous. It really was. And so the Jews were really looking forward to Messiah. And as a result, although they knew about the prophecies, about the suffering servant, and uh, and that was predicted of the Messiah, and that, but they also knew about you know the predictions about his conquest, his uh, rule of the world, and so on. And he would make Israel uh, the place from which he would rule the world. Uh, as time went on, because of their suffering and just uh, the chaos, they began to develop theories, kind of like we do today. Mm-hmm. And they developed theories that basically sidelined everything about the suffering servant. And then began to talk about this great military king who was going to come and fight for Israel and destroy their enemies and lead them to conquest. And so the Messiah just became this great military leader on a white horse. Uh, and that's not what Jesus came to be. He came to fight a battle, sure enough. But it was a much more intense battle than flesh and blood. He fought with the principalities and powers. And he also dealt with our sins and paid for the sins of the whole world because he was the God-man who was worthy to do that. And then he conquered, you know, sin, death, hell, and the grave for us. And then, uh, so that was the ultimate battle. That's the real battle, and that's what wins the battle. And then ultimately he's coming back to uh, enforce and apply uh, the consequences of that victory. And so, but uh, yeah, they had all kinds of theories, and they had turned the Messiah into a... Uh, you know, a political and a military savior, not someone who was going to save us from the real issue which started at the gates of Eden. And that is where we turned our back and betrayed God and set up on our own in independence from God and uh, needed to be led back to God and reconciled back to God. Yeah, very good. I think that we can see that in a lot of the teachings that we've moved forward with through in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. That's exactly the witness that was uh, given. And so these men, when Christ is telling them that this beautiful temple that they're witnessing and all these things around 
are going to be destroyed. That had to be disheartening for one because they, they really believed that he was going to resolve all their problems there and now. Mm-hmm. And, and they thought that this regime was going to be taken down and their lives were going to suddenly be freed again and they would know true joy And because the Messiah is here to rescue us. Right. And he's telling them that this isn't going to happen the way that they think it's going to happen. Right. He's telling them that there's a different plan and part of that plan is more time. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that that in itself probably was just took the wind right out of them. Yeah. Because like they waited so long and here I got to wait more. What are you talking about? Yeah. So when he's telling them that these things that are going to happen early, that we now know that happened early on, um, were going to happen, especially the temple being destroyed. How does he reconcile that in their minds? Because they're looking at going, there's no way that this thing can be torn down. I mean, it's so big, so mm-hmm. magnificent. Look how big the bricks are. I mean, mm-hmm. it probably wasn't something they could even conceive, really, right? Right. It would have been um, difficult, yes. So how does he get them to understand that difference about the things that they will likely witness in their lifetime? Well, well, he, he basically does that by, and, and you kind of alluded to it, by making it clear it, the timeline's not what you think. Uh and they thought they were approaching the mountain peak, and that was going to be destination. You know, we here we are, and we've arrived. And Jesus takes them, so to speak, as saying, no, we're going to come to the mountain peak, and we're going to look down. There's a big, long valley, and there's mm-hmm. another big mountain peak off in the distance, and that's the one that's destination. And there's a long valley to walk through. And he begins to describe that valley, and that's the Olivet Discourse, as he begins to talk about the sequence of things that are going to happen and uh, maybe we can turn to, uh, uh, like Matthew, we'll start with Matthew 24, and just read how Jesus began to answer them, and that'll start answering the question you've asked. Yeah. So if you go to Matthew 24, uh, and you get down to verse 3, it says, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And he, that's referring to the destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign you are coming and the end of the age. In other words, when are you going to start to rule? And when will the end of this present age come so that we can expect you to sit on the throne? And Jesus answered them. And so he starts out like this. <coughs> he says, watch out that no one deceives you. It's interesting. You would start that way, isn't it? Mm. Uh, it there's going to be deception. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear wars and rumors of wars, and but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Now, if we just take that far, Jesus is saying there's going to be a sequence of things happen here. He says uh, there's going to be false Christ come, and we know if we look at history that immediately after the time of Christ, the the Jews in particular had a lot of false messiahs uh, that just they just proliferated, and they all turn of course turned out to be fraudulent. Um, but we don't have time to go into that. But they had a lot of false messiahs after the time of Jesus, and they were trying to be the kind of messiah that the Jews really wanted, and of course that didn't work. Uh, and Jesus says that's what's going to happen. You're going to have these guys saying, well, I'm the, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. And they're going to deceive many people. And then he says you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Uh, actually, if you do a graph, and this has actually been done by many theologians and historians, and look at wars in the world, down through history, as far back as we have any records, you'll find that there's been a pretty constant amount of wars and skirmishes and conflicts. And it pretty, it's pretty much the same up until the time of Christ and then till about A.D. 70. And then, after Jerusalem is destroyed, the graph almost, begin, it, well, it does go up exponentially. It just keeps going up and going up and going up and going up. So from the time of the destruction of Jerusalem onward, there has been a constant increase in wars, rumors, where there's been, at times, hundreds and hundreds of little wars and skirmishes going on on the planet all over the place. And we have that today. We don't hear about most of them. Uh, most of them are very localized, but they're going on. And uh, and then, of course, Jesus said, you know, that you're going to hear about these rumors, but don't be alarmed yet. You know, that it's going to happen. That's going to be part of This is part of the desolation, the desolation that, that Daniel said in this period of time. It's going, it's been decreed till the 
time of the end arrives. And then uh, he says, don't be alarmed. He says, such things must happen, but the end is still ahead. It's still to come. Then he said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, this is stated in this way by Jesus to actually point to a new phase. This was wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed about that. Okay, that's going to happen. It's going to continue for quite some time. But then you're going to have nations rising as nations, kingdoms against kingdoms. This is more like him describing world war. And uh, it may not be only the world wars. There were some pretty large ones in Europe ahead of that and so on. But the point is, is that it's it, World War One and World War Two really do fulfill what Jesus is talking about here. The nations and the kingdoms of the earth rising up against each other. And we literally had the world at war in World War Two, And so you could say that in a sense we can put ourselves in the timeline and say, oh, we've kind of arrived at that phase. And then he goes on to say, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And of course, there's been a lot done about that. And the earthquakes and the famines have increased in the last uh, 150, 200 years dramatically. And uh, I have a brother who loves to keep track of the earthquakes. And he just keeps saying to me, you cannot believe how many we're having. Uh, and a lot of them are not very noticeable, but the, they're, the earth is literally trembling all the time. It's amazing. And he says, all these are the beginning of birth pains. A very descriptive word picture. He's saying, this is like a woman having labor pains. Now, the beginning of birth pains is when she says, she looks at her husband and goes, oh, I had a contraction. Uh, and he goes, oh, oh, you know, it was a bad one. Well, it's pretty good. Uh, and then, you know, there's nothing for maybe several hours. And then all of a sudden, oh, I had another one, you know. And then they start becoming more frequent and more and more frequent and then a little harder and more severe. And pretty soon they get close enough together and she goes, you better get me in the car and get me to the hospital or get me to the doctor or to the birthing center, whatever, because I'm about to have this baby. And birth pains tell you how, when something's arriving because of the intense frequency and the intense intensity. Okay. So when the intensity increases and the frequency increases, and that's why Jesus uses that word, because what he's describing is these events are going to be happening and they're going to happen more frequently. We've always had war and rumors of war, but they're going to happen more frequently. They're going to get more and more intense. That's why you get nations rising against nations and kingdoms rising against kingdoms. And it's going to get more and more. These are the birth pains. But then he says something like that. He says, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. Now, <clears throat> that's happened, of course, down through history. But Jesus is pointing to a period of time which is going to begin uh, martyrdom on a scale we've never seen before. Uh, and he uses a very interesting word here in the Greek. He uses the word tata. It's a simple word. It's translated then. Uh, according to the tense of how it's used, sometimes in the more modern translations, it will also be translated at that time. So uh, sometimes it means after this has happened, then this will happen. So it's a time sequence word. There's other words that are translated from the Greek then, but they're just uh, connectives and resumptives. But this word is a time sequence word. And so Jesus is saying, then, after all this other stuff has happened, then this new phase is going to start. And, uh, <clears throat> and then at other times he'll say, well, while that's going on, at that time, this will start happening. So that's how this word is used all the way through the Olivet Discourse. And so he says, tata, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. Now, he's here in Matthew 24 not talking about the time of the apostles, even though they were hated, and they were persecuted, and they were put to death. And we're going to see that that's referred to earlier. Uh, Jesus does refer to it here, but it's Luke who records that during the time of the apostles. But the point is, is that here he's talking about being hated by all nations on the earth. The word all in the Greek simply means all. <laughs> pan, 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 it just simply is a word which means everything, everyone. So uh, that includes even our nation, and we're starting to see that it's happened in America. If you are a true Bible-believing Christian that says there's only one way to God, and that's Jesus Christ, you're going to find the reception in the room gets very cold and the temperature goes down quickly. Uh, you talk about just, you know, warm, fuzzy spirituality, you'll get a warm reception. But the moment you start talking like the Bible talks, 
there can be vitriol coming at you very, very quickly. And we are hated by all nations now. That's a good point, because a lot of people that I have spoken to and a lot of people that have questions are are coming to this conclusion that we are entering into this measurable time that you just discussed because of the persecution of Christians in China, in Iran, in Mm -hmm. South Africa, Mm -hmm. in Central America, all over the world right now, Christians are being put to death. They're being hunted down. Churches churches are being burned to the ground. Their families are being tortured and arrested and jailed. Mm -hmm. And so they're seeing these events that are occurring that are somewhat described here, it seems, that we would be handed over, that Christians would be handed over for martyrdom. And that Mm -hmm. is actually happening before our eyes. Now, I know that it has happened throughout history. Yes. But at the same time, we have seen wars, little wars that pop up, Seems like almost every other month at times. Right. And the intensity of the things that are happening in these wars, when you start thinking about suicide bombers mm-hmm. and just walking into a restaurant and blowing up and killing 60, 70 people. And this happened all over the world, especially in the Middle East and in, in, in Southern Europe. It's happened a lot in the last few years. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm saying last decade, we've seen a lot of this happen at an increasing rate. Yes. At the same time, we're seeing the country of Israel that has come under pressure and attack from its neighbors, rockets fired in it from different co- neighboring countries. Yeah, continues. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so I, I see this and others have seen this as an increase in the tempo mm-hmm. of activity of wars and rumors of wars and the intensity where you're starting to talk about it being a person to person, just going and blowing people up. Mm-hmm. That That's so much more intense than what they would have seen throughout history where it's one man, one rifle, or one man, one sword mm-hmm. versus one person coming in with a, an explosive device that can take out 50 to 100 people. And at then we see the persecution of the church going on. And now we have in our country this movement in the last probably 30 or 40 years that, that, that it's okay to attack the Christian ideal. Mm-hmm. It's okay to attack those that believe in the Bible because they're just trying to restrict us. They're trying to mm-hmm. to boss us around and they're the ones that are actually wrong. And so we need to push them aside, kick them out of our society. And over the last 30 or 40 years, we've seen that increase as well mm-hmm. in intensity. And now in, in the environment we're in just most recently, we have it open warfare on Christianity. Right. And, and there are actually members of our own government that want to restrict Christian teaching. Right. In America. Yeah. In a place I would never think that. And we were founded on the freedom of Christian teaching and conscience. And that's, uh, that has begun to to vaporize. Yeah. And we're in, and this is, uh, we forget that even though there has always been martyrdom and and one of the things we're going to learn as we go through this all the discourse is that Jesus is not talking about any of these signs being new signs. And and there are a few that are down at the very end. I mean, like the stars falling from the sky. That obviously it doesn't happen every day. I mean, we see meteors and we see comets and so on. But you know, actually, that you know. But uh, <clears throat> when uh, what we don't realize is that Jesus is talking about at one point. He's going to say, when you see all these things begin to happen, and we take that to mean well, you know, these various things. No, he's talking about when it all begins to crescendo together. You got, you know, one little spike for a while and then it'll go back down. You got another little spike for a while and go down. But when they all begin to happen all together and they just stay up at maximum. And if I had, if we were visual here, I could show you some graphs that show that we got about 25 parameters that all just going straight up in, in the last few decades. And it's amazing what's going on. Most people don't know that, for example, Christians have been being martyred all over the world for the, for the last uh, 100 years. And uh, it's just constantly increased under atheistic communism in its various forms, Mao Zedong, uh, Stalin, uh, you know, and so on. And then, you know, fascism and Hitler. There have been hundreds of millions of Christians who have died and people dying for just political reasons as well. In fact, more people died for religious reasons and political reasons in the 20th century, which we just came through, than died in all the previous centuries combined. And most people don't know that. We lived right through this incredible bloodbath. And here in the West, we've just been really sheltered from it to a large degree. While other Christians in other countries have gone through such severe persecution at times, 
they thought they were in the Great Tribulation because, you know, they couldn't imagine it getting any worse because their families were being destroyed and they were being hauled off to prison and beaten and tortured. And, you know, and uh, we hear about the persecuted church, but we really don't engage it that much. But Jesus is saying this is going to be a time when this really ramps up worldwide. And that's what we've seen. And it's coming to America. Uh, trust me. Uh, and people don't want to hear it. But it, he says, then you will. And he's talking to the church, the disciples, the seed of the church. Then you will be persecuted and hand over and put to death. And um, and he's used that word, Tata. Then this is a beginning of a period of time where this is going to really start ramping up. <clears throat> and so, and then he uses that word again. And you'll behave by all nations become me. And he says, Tata, then, at that time, as it's translated here, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. So this is what is often called the great falling away because of persecution. And you can see in the West that that has begun to happen on many levels, but it's going to happen even more so as it really costs you to be a Christian. You get marginalized. People don't like you. You're told you're a wacko. You're told you're some kind of dangerous person because you believe things that are not acceptable. Uh, and if you disagree with people today, you can't, dis- we, we no longer believe in being able to disagree agreeably. If you disagree with me, then you hate me. Or, you know, somehow that's an insult to me. Um, we, the university is no longer a place of discussion of ideas. It's a, everybody can form and be, you know, brainwashed to the propaganda because if you say anything other than what is the party line or what we all agree to, then, you know, you're somehow, uh, you know, making me uncomfortable and therefore you're a threat and, and we should somehow marginalize you. Uh, that's sad because you can't grow in knowledge and you can't, and that's a real tragedy. And, but that's what's happened under relativism and, and cultural Marxism and critical theory and that we have in our universities. It, it's just taken over. We've trained the last three, four generations in that, and that, and now we're wondering why everything's happening like it is. They don't believe in truth. They don't believe in <clears throat> things our founding fathers believed in, in America is now considered radical, crazy stuff, mm-hmm. you know, by these people because they've been told America is evil and all those people were crazy. Yeah, we've kind of moved into a uh, social point system, if you will. Mm-hmm. And the more closely you align yourself with the teachings of Jesus Christ and what the Word of God says, the less points you get in our society. <laughs> yeah. And the yeah. farther you can be from that, it seems like the more points you get. And so if you are a Bible-believing Christian today, it is fully acceptable to just shut you down, shut you up. And we can see that now in social media where the social media platforms are just shutting people off, kicking them out. Oh, yeah. They're silencing the voice yeah. of the Christians. They're silencing the voice of anybody that would speak against this system that they're created that yeah. would control us. Well, well, a system based on lies and deception and propaganda has to control the narrative. Because if it doesn't control the narrative, the truth will break out. Mm-hmm. Truth uh, has a way of constantly sticking its head above the ground, you know but they're constantly casting it to the ground. Daniel predicted that in these last days that truth would be cast to the ground. And that's what's happening. But truth keeps coming up. And so they've got to control the narrative, you know. And uh, and so they that's why totalitarianism will come in uh, at some point. Uh, you know, they have to control the, all the media, which they're doing to a large degree, and they have to shut down any media that in any way uh, breaks with the narrative and, and would make people think that what they're doing is deceptive. And we've seen that recently, especially with them kicking Parler offline even. I mean, here mm-hmm. here's a, a group of people went to a different platform, wasn't weren't trying to infiltrate their platform anymore. They went to their own platform, and they, it wasn't acceptable for them to have a voice at all. So they had the whole platform deplatformed and removed from the Internet. Yeah. I mean, that's silencing. Yeah, I mean that that's book burning in that, that, the modern age, right? Yeah, that that's Stalin and Hitler like, and and yet they'll accuse the people they they did that against as being those kind of people. And this is one of the things about critical theory and and cultural Marxism. You, according to Saul Alinsky, which he taught, one of the ways you overcome is that you always accuse those you want to destroy of doing the very thing you're actually doing, yeah. and even though they may not be guilty of it. Doesn't matter if you say it enough, everybody's going to believe it, right? <laughs> So I'm wondering, uh, you spoke a little bit about America being sheltered from what the rest of the world has been experiencing mm-hmm. probably for the last hundred years, we could easily say, right? 
many of the people I speak to believe that in America, we see this thing coming because we've been sheltered and we're no longer sheltered. Is that an indication in your mind that this stuff has been intensifying and it's breaking through these barriers that were put up here in America that we're now experiencing things that we hadn't for over a hundred years because it's got so strong and so prevalent that now it's breaking through those barriers, those shields that have been put in place here. It's actually increasing and we're, we're experiencing things that we had never experienced before in America. And, uh, we are learning more about, uh, what's going on in the world in some ways because media has improved so much and there's so much more available to us. But on the other hand, we are also, uh, kept from a lot of the information about what's going on with the Christians. You're not going to see huge news reports and, and documentaries on how Christians are being slaughtered and murdered and their churches burned to the ground. You get a little note here and there back on, you know, page 50, uh, or something, but you're not going to get much, but it's happening constantly, and it should be massive news, but it's not. And the most persecuted people in the world are Christians right now, and yet nobody wants to talk about it. You know, so uh, yeah, it's it's actually increasing considerably. Um, but we better get back to Matthew 24, I think. Okay, sounds um, great. Yeah, well, it, it Jesus here then says that there's going to be this great falling away. Many people will be deceived. He says, but the one who stands firm to the end. They're the ones who's going to be saved. Uh, we could talk about that for a long mm-hmm. time, but the point is, and then he says, but here's a key point. He says, and then, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then, tata, the end will come. Now, the word the term, the phrase, the end will come, doesn't mean the last day or the last day of the age. What it means is the time designated for the end, which is always referred to in the Old Testament as the time of the end, the time of the end. That's where we get that term. And that's what Jesus is referring to. That time designated for the end to come will arrive at that point. Now, this is a barometer. How close are we to actually getting the gospel to every ethnos is what the Greek puts here. Every ethnos, so that every ethnos is heard. We're getting close. We're getting very close. Yeah, I would say with the advent of the internet and, and all of the different media media types that are out there, we've reached a large portion of the modern world, we would call it. Yeah. And with missionaries, we've reached most every jungle corner there is. Well, a lot of Christians don't realize how far we've come in this. Because, for example, you'll hear about many of the translations like Wycliffe and others will say, well, you know, there's, there's you know, still a hundred and some languages we haven't got the Bible into, and that's true, and we need to keep working at that, you know, very diligently. But that's not telling the whole story, because what's happening is that a majority of the world now are learning to speak one language. We're going back to English. Uh, we Americans are very lazy, you know, we're usually <laughs> monolingual, but uh, you go to Europe and people speak five languages commonly, mm-hmm. or, you know, six languages, and but almost all of them speak English. And so we go to Europe and we expect them to speak our language because we can't speak theirs. And, uh, and so, uh, so many people are learning English that they really don't need the Bible translated into their language. They can read it for themselves, even if they, you know, the, they've never, and they can learn to read. And if they learn to read, they're likely going to learn to read English uh, in most parts of the world. And so this is, it's quickly getting the gospel to every ethnos. Mm-hmm. So when this is done, Jesus says the time destined for the end will come. But, and then you see the very next phrase is very important. He says, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination of desolation. And then he says, spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And then Matthew adds a little inclusion. Jesus didn't say this. He says, let the reader understand. And then he talks about a reaction that should happen in Jerusalem. Okay. And we'll talk about that later because Jesus here is talking about the end time reaction. We'll show that. But in Luke, he had addressed this and Luke records what he talked about would happen in AD 70 and the Jews would be dispersed to all the nations of the world until the times of the Gentiles were finished. That happened in AD 70. The one here is clearly the end time when that happens at the end of the age and he's talking about the abomination desolation that Daniel said would happen in the middle of that last seven. And the reason we know that is he talks about how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women, nursing mothers. He goes on, he says, for then there will be great distress 
unequal from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. That's not AD 70. AD 70, we've seen worse times than AD 70 since AD 70. And he said what happens here, and he's describing here, will never be equaled again. So this is the tribulation, the great one. Okay, so that's what's being described here. And so Jesus says what signals that this time designated for the end has arrived. And so we're in this calendar is that this abomination of desolation takes place. I would love to pause. We don't have time on this podcast today, but maybe we'll be able to do it later. Pause and talk about what's happening in Israel with the really the identification of the true site of the temple, mm. which is not up there on the Sharif Sharom, which is actually was the Roman fortress, which the Jews have mistaken for the temple. It's actually down in the city of David, where the Bible says it's supposed to be. And they've discovered the Gihon Spring, mm-hmm. which used to come up in the center of the temple. Of course, it's been there for years, and people don't realize that you had to have that spring, only live water in Jerusalem. And you could not carry on the sacrifice without live water. They couldn't use cistern water. That's why there's a big aqueduct that goes to what's often called the Temple Mount, because the Romans lived up there and they used aqueduct water because uh, they had over 10,000 people living up there. They had over 6,000 soldiers and 4,000 support staff. And where would you put them? It takes a big city. And literally, that's what it was. Josephus described it as that. But down in the city of David was the Gihon Spring, but the Jews wouldn't let them use it. That was sacred water. And it was live water for the sacrifices. And you had to have that. You couldn't use still water. It had to be running, flowing water. And so now we know that the Jews, when they, when the old timers and traditionalists finally admit we've been praying at a Roman fortress rather than the temple site, and that's hard for them. And the younger archaeologists are trying to get them to accept the evidence. When that happens, there's nothing standing in the way of them going and building the temple because now they know the holy site is not up there on that mount. It's on the real mount was torn down. The Romans literally, as Josephus describes, tore the not only the temple down, but they tore the whole mountain down and shoved it in the Kidron Valley and raised the level of the Kidron Valley many, many, many feet because they didn't want the Jews to ever be even able to tell that there had ever been a building there. And they did that to a large portion of the old Jerusalem, the city of David. And so uh, it's only recent archaeology that's discovered all this. So when Jesus talks about this abomination of desolation, he's talking about a rebuilt temple. Mm-hmm. And the Antichrist, as Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians 2, he's going to set himself up as God. And he talks about that's the time of the apocalypto when he is unmasked, he is revealed. And we're told that Christ can't come until he is revealed and he sets himself up as God in the temple. In fact, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, you know, somebody's been upsetting you, telling you the day of the Lord's already come. He said, don't let them upset you in any way. That day cannot happen until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, the man doomed to destruction, is apocalypto, revealed. And then he goes on to describe what that revealing is. He will set himself up in the temple, you know, claiming that he is God, demanding worship, so on and so forth. And so that's the revealing. That's what this is here. Daniel talks about this, this abomination, desolation in the midst of the last seven. And here Jesus points to it. Verse 15 is when the great tribulation begins. And he says, that's the period for the time of the end. So we know exactly the sequence here. And we're in that period up to working up to that because we're seeing the persecution, the hatred, the killing of Christians, and that's going to continue to increase. But at some point, we're going to start moving in, and if we see a seven-year treaty for globalism, which they're pushing so hard now, they want that so bad, and the, uh, the, the critical theory people and the cultural Marxists in our country were so upset when they didn't get their people in a while back, <laughs> about, yeah. eight, about four, over four years ago, because they mm-hmm. thought they had it all set up and that they were going to be able to push for globalism, but they're pushing for it now, right. and you can be sure they're going to push really hard. Whether God will let them do it, I don't know. But the point is, we're in a place where it could not be long before that seven-year treaty would happen. If it does, that's when the clock starts ticking. And 42 months in, we're going to see this. And that means the Antichrist will rise in those first 42 months. I think there's a confusion from a lot of Christian standpoint that nothing really horrible or bad is going to happen to us as a whole until the tribulation. But I think as we discussed today, and, and you pointed out, that these intense times, persecutions, hatred, 
wars, mm-hmm. all are just going to increase in intensity and in pace as we lead up to that time. Right. So I'm hoping that the listeners will understand that we're probably going to see some really horrible, disturbing times in our lifetimes. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the tribulation, right? but it's certainly going to feel like that. Yeah. And it, it's often felt like that for many people around the world for the last many decades. Right. Uh, and so, yes, there's going to be a time, lots of tribulation. It's going to be a buildup. And this is an escalation, as Jesus describes it. And uh, But there's going to be a critical mass. There's going to be a critical point. And we're starting to approach that. And it's going to, and when it does, it's going to move quickly. That's the point. It's like a, uh, it's like a snowball rolling down a hill. It doesn't, uh, uh, you know, at, at first it's not very, uh, very big, but then it takes on size. It takes on momentum. Pretty soon it's just, you know, it's like a freight train and uh, you can't stop it. Uh, so it's an avalanche. So that's, that's kind of the same thing that's going to happen when it happens that fast. When it gets to that point, you can't run from it. It's, it's going to engulf you. And, uh, and that kind of brings us, I mean, we're, we're not even remotely partly through the Olivet Discourse here, but we can see that Jesus has not described the rapture yet. Mm-hmm. And some people say he never does. Well, I can promise you he didn't leave it out. <laughs> and it is in here. But he puts it after the tribulation of these days, and he talks about the Son of Man appearing in the sky, and the, you know, and the nations weeping and mourning. And he does talk about sending his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they gather his elect from the four winds, one end of the heavens to the other. And if you take that passage and lay it alongside the great rapture passage in Paul's First Thessalonians 5, 13 through 18, you discover there are five key elements, and they're exactly the same in both passages. And so there's no scriptural reason to separate them and say, well, one's the rapture and one's the second coming of Christ. No, they're exactly the same event. You've got trumpets, you've got angels, you've got clouds, you've got Jesus in the sky, you know, you've got the saints being gathered from all over the earth. I mean, it's clearly the same event and there's no logical scriptural way to divide them and we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit but the, yeah so i was just gonna say well it sounds like that's something that we need to discuss in a future date yes but yes. uh i i think we uh have probably reached the end of our time today okay uh, i do so appreciate you coming and talking to us today about this and helping us to understand uh where we are going where we've been as a people Mm-hmm. Um, where where Jesus has uh, described this uh, time that we're in. And I just appreciate your taking the time to educate us in a way that a lot of people don't get the opportunity to hear. This is a great concern for people. I know churches around the nation often avoid these types of discussions. Mm-hmm. And it's extremely important for us to let people hear this and, and help them to understand the world that they live in, what Jesus told us from the very beginning was going to happen throughout history, and then sort of where we can expect to move from here mm-hmm. um, without all the fear and hype and lies and deception. Well, maybe we'll get a chance to do a part two and a part three, because I think that's what it's going to take for us to get through this. But I think people need to understand that it, when we come through the whole thing and the whole study, we learn that there's wonderful hope and there's no reason to be in despair and uh, that God is going to be with us. And it's going to be, while a challenging time, an exciting time. And we're going to see incredible things. It's going to be a supernatural time because it's going to be the spiritual against the spiritual, the spiritual evil against the good spiritual. And we're going to see some devastating things, but we will know that they were predicted and that we're supposed to endure. And at the same time, we're going to see some incredible things that are going to be so affirming to our faith, which will cause us to look up and say, oh, my redemption is drawing near and so these, these are exciting times to live, and uh, I think we need to be good students of the Word. But there are there's so much more if we get into Revelation and compare it to the Alvet Discourse about these things we're going to have to walk through and how it calls for faithfulness on the part of those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. You know, And so we're gonna, those are important things. So maybe we'll get a chance to do that. Sounds great. I would love to do that. Mm-hmm. And for those of you listening out there, I just want to say I thank you for li- giving us your time. and. What I would ask you to do is to research, get into your Bible, get into the Word, start to learn these things that uh, Pastor Durham has talked about today. Start to ask questions. If your church isn't talking about this, then go ask questions. It's never wrong to ask questions. It's never wrong to try to understand more about what you're being taught. 
And so our action for you today is to go get educated, learn about what's going on. Don't just listen to some voice on the radio. Don't just listen to the newscasters. Don't listen to your neighbors. Go and learn it for yourself. The only way you're really ever going to understand this is if you get in the word and you actually get with God and ask what you need to know. It'll be revealed to you. I promise. Thank you for walking with us through this portion of the Olivet Discourse. Stick with us as we journey through the calendar that Jesus revealed to his disciples about the end of the age and the signs that we should be looking for. Please take a moment and subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget to visit our website at vrbroadcast.org, where you can find more teaching and ask questions of the show and our guests. Also, find us on Facebook at A Voice Calling in the Wilderness. And if you want to hear more messages from Pastor Durham, you can find him at pcnh.church. And do us a favor, recommend the podcast to your friends and family. Again, thank you for listening and have a blessed day.